And you adults, if you'd turn to Habakkuk chapter 2, please. Habakkuk chapter 2. And we're continuing our study verse by verse through this short book of the Minor Prophets. You might remember from chapter 1, Habakkuk starts off the conversation putting forth a concern that he has with how God is handling things in the nation. And then God responds and says that he does have a plan. That brings us to verse 11. And then verse 12 to the end of the chapter, Habakkuk says, All right, I got you. I heard what you had to say, but I'm still concerned. Because if you're going to use the Chaldeans to punish us, the Chaldeans are worse than we are. So how is this not condoning their bad behavior? God, this just doesn't seem right. So if you can think of it this way, Habakkuk focuses in on one problem. See the bigger picture. I do have a plan. The Chaldeans will come and punish them. And then Habakkuk says, but God, that still doesn't answer the whole thing because these are wicked people. God says, okay, you need to see the even bigger plan. I have, I have a plan to take care of the Chaldeans after they are finished doing what uh, they are going to do. So that brings us to chapter 2 and verse 1. I mentioned this verse a little bit last time, but let's start again here. I will stand upon my watch, Habakkuk says, and set me upon the tower <clears throat> and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. So Habakkuk says, I'm just going to wait in the watchtower, see what God has to say. And as I mentioned last time, he's thinking about how am I going to answer back? Because I know God has an answer. Don't you know that? Don't you know God has an answer to all of our questions? And whenever you're in the midst of an argument, this is usually how arguments go. Rather than actually listening to what the other person is saying, we're busy thinking about how am I going to prove my side of the argument rather than trying to understand the other person's side of the argument. So there's a very good practical lesson in this. But I thought for a moment, let me focus on a different practical aspect to this. Habakkuk has uh, taken his place in a watch tower. See that word watch there? I will stand upon my watch. This makes me think of something Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. You might remember he invited the disciples to pray with him. And he said, guys, watch and pray. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's something about prayer that really tests, sorry, that really tests our flesh. And I think one of the greatest tests or challenges when it comes to prayer is the waiting, the watching. It's one thing to step into the prayer closet and say, God, this is what I'm concerned about. This is what I'm confused about. It's another thing to wait and watch for God to answer. We expect God immediately to show up, fix it, explain it to us. And many times God says, I I hear what you're saying. I got it. I do have a plan. But bless your heart, if I told you now, you wouldn't understand it anyway. So you need to just spend some time in the watchtower and wait for things to unfold. And in due time, God says, I will explain it to you when you're ready to hear the whole thing. But right now, you couldn't handle it if I told you everything. Sometimes when it comes to prayer, you're just going to have to wait for the answer. Now this is where faith comes in. Take your Bible, hold this, and get Luke chapter 18. 
Faith and prayer go hand in hand. Faith and prayer go hand in hand. Luke 18, Jesus is giving a parable about, uh, about prayer. You can see in verse 1, He spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. So that's the purpose of the parable. And then he talks about this widow coming to an unjust judge, and she continually comes, and finally the prayer gets answered. The petition gets answered. And then at the end, verse 8, look at what he says here. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. That's part of the parable. That's part of the parable. Because what happens is we, we go to the judge, right? The unjust judge, you understand his position in this parable. He's taking the spot of God. Now, what's Habakkuk's position? What's his posture towards God? God, you're not handling this justly. God, what I am watching going on in society is not fair. You should step in and do something about this immediately. That's how we sometimes look at God. God, this isn't fair. I'm trying, and yet things are not working out. So God, I'm doing my part. I don't know if you're doing yours. See? So it's a very fitting parable for how we approach God in prayer. Now, when you study, we're not going to take time to study the whole parable. But at the end, he says the problem is people lose faith because they step into the prayer closet. They put the petition before the judge and say, okay, God, I got other things to do. When is this going to happen? And rather than waiting on God to bring it all together, we just quit praying. We quit waiting on God. We go off trying to fix it our own way. And that's when things get dangerous. Now come back to Habakkuk chapter 2. All right, so one, one note you get from verse 1, learn how to wait for the answer. Habakkuk says, I'm going to wait here for the answer. I will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. I hope that's, what you, uh, I hope that's the attitude you have this morning as you come to church. God, I'm going to go sit on my watchtower, there, whatever chair you're in, that's my watchtower, and I'm waiting, God. I, I want to see what you have to say to me today. Now, you want to learn that from Habakkuk. You may not want to learn the last thing he says. Okay, and I know what I'm going to say whenever the, when the preacher says this. I ain't saying amen. I'm saying this. Okay, don't, don't, calm down, right? Easy, easy boy, easy. But still, still a decent lesson to learn. Now, verse 2, And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. Write the vision. Isn't this fantastic? We have now, this is about approximately 2,500 years later, we have the vision. Habakkuk was obedient. He wrote it down. Now, I don't want to get into a long discussion of this. It gets technical and a little bit boring. But when we have God telling one of the prophets, write this down, that is part of the process of inspiration. That is God moving on that man, revealing something to him. The man writes it down. I believe that after the man writes it down, that God looks at what he's written and breathes upon the words that he's written. And that is what brings those words to life. So it it says in Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God is quick and powerful. The word quick means alive. Well, how did the words themselves come to life? The same way Adam came to life. God formed him, right, out of the dust of the ground and then breathed into him. 
So the words were formed, and then after the words or the whole book is formed, God says, that's exactly what I want to communicate to humanity. So these were the words of Habakkuk, and he says, now they're my words, and they're alive, and they're alive forevermore because God breathed into it. That is why we believe the soul is an eternal entity because it came about by God breathing into it, thus making it eternal. Now, that is inspiration. But inspiration without preservation is almost useless. I say almost because the generation that receives, in this case, the words of Habakkuk, right, that generation can read it and go, this is awesome. Now we understand what's going on. We know the long-term plan. We know what to do. We know how to respond. But if God does not preserve those words for the next generation and the next and the next, what good was it to inspire it in the first place? Only to help a few people for a few years. One of the greatest miracles that God has ever done, you're actually holding in your hand or in your lap. The fact that God gave the words and then preserved them. Do you realize how many times the enemy has tried to take this away from us? If you look down through church history, there was one time in the, in the early 300s, the emperor Diocletian, the Roman emperor, God, he ordered that every Christian be killed and every page of Scripture be burned. And he almost did it. He almost accomplished it. Every page of Scripture, the stories that you get from that time period are it, it'll, it just blows your mind away. If somebody was found with one page of Scripture, one man, he was a deacon, his name was Timothy, he had one page of the book of Ephesians. That's it. They hung him upside down, poured honey over him, they skinned him, poured honey on him, and then allowed the ants to kill him just for having one page of Scripture. His newly married wife, <clears throat> sorry, they've been married for about three weeks, they said, if you give up that one page, tell us where it's at so we can burn it, we will let you live. And they took the gag out of Timothy's mouth long enough for him to say, honey, give them the page. She said, I'd rather die next to you. And they hung her and did the exact same thing to her. Just for one page of Scripture. Now, when you understand how vicious things have got, how difficult it was to maintain the integrity of this book. Not just the physical pages, right? But, but God watching over it, making sure that the words stay the way they should till this present day. It's an absolute miracle we have that book still. So he says, write the vision and make it plain. Make it plain. I like that. Make it easy to understand. Put it right down there, Habakkuk, on their level. Don't make it compl don't overcomplicate it. Prophecy is complicated enough because we're talking about the future and it's hard to understand things that haven't happened yet. Right? So make it as plain as you possibly can. Let me show you a verse or two. Get Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. How many of you like me have frozen fingers and find it hard to turn the pages? Is, is that pretty much everybody? Yeah, me too. Wow. <clears throat> I need to hire an official page turner to stand next to me. <laughs> you know, in some churches, they have, it, it is an actual position. They have a reader. Have any of you guys ever been in a church like that? Or even seen a church like that? 
In America, it's, it's not common, but you do find it. And it's, I tell you where you find it a lot is in African-American churches, black churches in the States. They have the pastor doing the preaching, and then they have a deacon or somebody else that does the reading. And it's, all right, Mr. Rita, go ahead and read that verse. And then he read, but the reader really gets into it, right? So he, he gets it. All right, now the Bible says in verse 8, now go. Write it before them. And I mean, he really gets into it. It adds something to the service. I, maybe we should try that one day. No? Niels, you want to give it a go? I think Niels would make a good reader. <laughs> maybe not. We'll try it one day. All right, well, let, let's read it just normal now. <laughs> Isaiah 30, verse 8. Now go, write it before them in a table, and note it in a book, that it may be for the time to come for how long? Forever and ever. Do you see God's plan in this? Write it, and I want this generation to read it, but I'm going to preserve it forever and ever. Now, the reason I emphasize this with you a little bit, you'll, <laughs> it's kind of sad, I think. There's a, a, I'd say the majority of Christendom does not believe that God has preserved His words. The vast majority think that when the apostles wrote, when the prophets wrote, it was inspired it was God's Word back then, but what we have now is just a, a, a bits and pieces of what God's Word used to be, and that God hasn't preserved it, that we've lost parts of it, we've changed parts of it, and the Bible has become corrupt. Well, the problem with that is if certain parts of it were lost, and if certain parts were corrupt, how do you know that the verse you're reading now isn't corrupted? How do, how do you know that maybe we don't have the whole story if some of it's lost maybe we don't have some verses that would help us understand it so we could never fully understand it it's actually i think a dangerous thing to believe if he inspired it god said i'll preserve it now verse 9 that this is a rebellious people lying children children that will not hear the law of the lord you remember isaiah came way before habakkuk about 200 years or so but you can see this consistency with how God does it. Prophet, come here. I'm going to show you something. This is how I'm going to deal with the people. Write it down. Not just tell them, write it down. There's something special about it being written on the page. And he says, that once it's on the page, I'll preserve it forever right from there. Now, if you will, come back to Habakkuk. So he says, write it down. Habakkuk, write it. And make it plain. Make it plain upon tables. Now, people understand these tables in various ways. A lot of people say it was like a, like a poster almost that, with wax, and then you would write in, and it would harden, and then it would be there. I, that might be the case. Whatever, whatever that uh, substance was, make it plain. Now, some people understand that as, as saying, Habakkuk, write it legibly. Use good handwriting. Oh, that's a good tip, by the way. <laughs> We have a Bible school, and I try to grade papers, you know, and I have people write out sermons, and sometimes I have to call them and say, what is paragraph two saying? <laughs> that, I don't read Egyptian hieroglyphics, right? <laughs> They're writing with emojis, you know, and I, I, don't, I don't get that. <laughs> um, so I'm all for writing legibly, but I think making it plain have you ever sat under a, a sermon where the, the pastor or the dominee or whoever it was used those big theological terms? It is very difficult, nigh unto impossible to follow along, right? 
When people start talking about the salvific reasons of the sublapsarian system and the antipenult is on the… Uh, <laughs> that gets, it gets hard to follow, right? Make it plain. Now, when you go through the life of Jesus and look at how he communicated to the people. I heard somebody else preach a sermon about this recently. He called it country preaching. You need good country preaching. Just get, I'm going to give you, I, I'm taking notes from him here, but just in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is putting forth very important spiritual truth. But here's how he made it plain. He used illustrations. L listen to a list of these. He, he used salt, light, candles, fighting with your brother. We know all about that. Birds, lilies, something stuck in your eye. Dogs and hogs, hungry child wanting bread and not a stone. Fish and serpents, sheeps, sheep and wolves, trees and fruit, and a house standing on a strong foundation or a sinking foundation. That's all stuff right down here on our level. What was he explaining? Spiritual truth. But here's the problem with spiritual things. We are not by nature spiritual. Amen. <laughs> we are natural. We understand things that we can see, taste, touch, feel, right? That's, that's our domain. When you start talking about spiritual things that we can't see, we can't feel, we can't observe and measure, right, with science and all of that, how do I wrap my head around that? Jesus says, let me make it plain. I'm talking about standing for righteousness' sake. So let me talk about a city set on a hill. Let me talk about a candle hid under a bushel. And now I start to get, okay, this is making sense. Take your Bible, come to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. <clears throat> First Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 14. First Corinthians 2.14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. God is aware of the barrier between our natural senses and the spiritual nature. So when the Spirit of God wants to reveal something to us, look at verse 10. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. How is he going to reveal that to me? Well, you just look through the Bible. In order to make it plain, they, the Bible over and over again uses simple illustrations. And then it comes down on our level. A sower went forth to sow. And he had seeds. And he threw the seeds out. Some of the seeds fell by the wayside. Some fell on stony ground. Some fell among the thorns. And others fell on good ground. Now, okay, I can get that. I can picture that, right? And then Jesus went on to explain that parable. That's all about preaching and how the Word of God brings forth fruit and how the condition of your heart affects the fruit you bring forth. Now, if, I didn't, if Jesus hadn't used an illustration, it would have been incredibly difficult to communicate all of that to you. But if you think about it, the devil, how do we know how he operates? You look at how the apostles described his operations with mankind. For your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Remember those two words I told you to look for? Like 
and as. That's because when God uses like and as, he's making it as plain as he can so that you go, oh, okay, I get it. I get it. Take your Bible, come to Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 8. Let's get 7. Nah, let's get six. <laughs> All right, Proverbs 1, verse 1. <laughs> Proverbs 8, verse 6. He says, Hear, for I will speak of excellent things, and the opening of my lips shall be right things. For my mouth shall speak truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing froward or perverse in them. They are all what? Plain to him that understandeth and right to them that find knowledge. They're plain. Plain. That's, I, you, you're welcome to your opinion on this. This is more subjective, I think, than objective. But I like preaching when it's real simple and plain and direct. Not, not, not rude and mean, but right down there on my level. I like that bottom shelf preaching. You understand what I mean by that? Some preachers, they're way up there on the top shelf, and those words, you need to bring a dictionary to church. I don't like that. I want it right down here where I can get it. That's where I, that's where I want it. Look at Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22. Verse 17. Bow down thine ear and hear the words of the wise and apply thine heart unto my knowledge. For it is a pleasant thing if thou keep them within thee. They shall withal be fitted in thy lips. He'll put his words in your mouth. You'll know how to speak them and say them. That thy trust may be in the Lord, I have made known to thee this day, even to thee. Have not I written to thee excellent things in counsels and knowledge, that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth, that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee? God says, guys, I've written it down in counsels and knowledge so that you could understand it. And so that when somebody asks, why do you believe this or that, or why do you do this or that, you can explain it to them. You know, when Jesus got done with the Sermon on the Mount, you know what the reaction of the people were? Not just his disciples, but just the general crowd. They said, this man speaks with authority and not like the scribes. Now, if you understand who the scribes were, that was the educated religious class of the day. They were the professors using the big words. And when the, public, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> when the public heard them speak, they said, we don't have a clue what they're saying. But when Jesus showed up, he said, let me talk to you about dogs and hogs and fishes and serpents and birds and lilies. And they went, okay, we get this. We get this. And then it hit them. Because they could understand it, it hit them hard. I, Mark Twain, everybody familiar with that name? Uh, he was not a believer by any means, but he had this to say about the Bible. He said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Right? Because some things are the, in the Bible, you look through the glass darkly, you, it, it, you do have to work to understand it. It's, the, it's so many parts of the Bible that are plain. That's why Mark Twain didn't like the Bible. Because so many times he, he could read it and go, this is directly against the way I feel, act, believe. It's the part you do understand that caused the problems. All right, come back to Habakkuk chapter 2 again. 
And we're still in verse 2. The Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. God's word is supposed to produce reaction. After you're done in here this morning, what do you do with this? Say, I'm going to run to the restaurant. (laughs) I'm going to run home where there's a warm blanket and a cup of tea waiting for me. (laughs) And I'm going to binge watch something for the rest of the day. What are you going to run? What are you going to do with it? God says, I'm going to write it down. I'm I'm going to preserve it for 2,500 years so that you can read it and do something with it. That he may run that readeth it. After I got saved, immediately I picked up a Bible. I hated reading. Hated it growing up. Hated it. I read one book growing up, To Kill a Mockingbird. That was it. And it was a a school assignment. I really didn't want to do it. I did it. The rest of the book. Now, we had lots of assignments in our English class. I would always get a cheerleader to read the book for me and then tell me about it. And then I'd write the report. Yeah, that's how. I'm not. Don't try that. (laughs) I'm just saying I did it. Right. That's how I did it. I hated reading. I, I kid you not, the day I got saved, I got interested in reading. Amen. And, and just, I think this is biblical, isn't it? First Peter 2, verse 2, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. That just like I, as a newborn babe, I'd just been born again. I had a desire, God, please teach me more about yourself. And this is the repository where God puts all that knowledge. This is where I can go to find more about him. So I started reading and reading. And I I start reading in there. Jesus said, if you follow me, you'll be a fisher of men. I said, man, I want to follow Jesus. So every day of the week, Christina and I, we went out on the streets. Car parks were our favorite fishing spots. That was the fishing hole. Because in car parks, there's always people coming in and out. And we'd stand out there in the car parks two or three hours a night, handing out tracts, talking to people. We went to old folks' homes, prisons. We'd ride around in the van with our pastor. Our pastor was the worst driver in the history of America. I kid you not, he totaled the church bus, he totaled the van without ever hitting anything. He never hit anything. He drove so badly, the insurance company wrote the vehicle off and said, it's totaled, you've wrecked it. Because he would jump over curbs because he didn't see it. Because he'd be turning, he'd say, hey, Brother Mike. And he'd turn around and talk to me in the back seat while he's driving and going forward. You talk about going by faith, brother. We, we did it by faith. Even Brother Freddie driving by faith, not by sight. <laughs> We're driving along in that bus. We'd get in the bus one or two hours a night. And we would drive around the neighborhoods looking for somebody walking. And as soon as we find him, we'd open the door, jump out the side of the bus and run over there with a track and say, sir, are you saved? I can't, now, listen, looking back, I wouldn't suggest you do that because wow, that looks like a kidnapping about to happen, right? Somebody throws open a bus. If you try that in South Africa, you will get shot. You're gonna die, right? If you wanna see Jesus quickly, do that. That is not, it worked where we were at, but not now, not now. But you know what we were doing? We literally ran to people. We'd run them down. There'd be people on a sidewalk. They're, they're just minding their own business, going to Walmart or McDonald's or whatever. And I'd see them up there. And I'd take off running just to give them a track. It'd take me 10 minutes to catch my breath while I'm witnessing to them because I was full out sprint. I'd run. I did that for months. And then God called me down to Bible school. 
several, you know, a couple thousand kilometers away. He said, what'd you do? I got in the car, ran off to Bible school. Three years later, graduate. One week after I graduate, get on a plane. What'd I do? Fly, <laughs> run over to Malawi. Worst three weeks of my life, get back to the States. You know what I did? I drove all around America in 20 months. I went about, I, I can't remember exactly, about 500,000 kilometers, something like that, just all around the country, drive, 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 just running all over America. And then I got to Malawi, just running all day and all night, and get to South Africa, just run, run, run. There's too much to get done. There's too much to get done. He said, Brother Mike, slow down. Well, how about you run the race with me? See, a lot of the reason that I'm, I'm running left and right is because some people are, I want to say they're crawling. Some people are at a dead standstill. And there's not a whole lot of forward momentum. And after a while, you do get a bit tired. And I must admit, I've, I've felt that. But this is what Paul said. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. You know what? He, he, Paul ran. He ran that race. L let me show you a verse about this. 1 Corinthians 9. I'm not asking you to run so hard that you burn out too quick. See, I'm not asking you to do that. You, do, you, you need to, when I say pace yourself, you need to factor in that I'm going to be running this race the rest of my life, so I can't use up everything I got in the first week. I, I need to plan ahead. So please be mindful of that. I haven't always been mindful of it, but I'm suggesting that you should be. 1 Corinthians 9, look at verse 24. I love this. Paul's going to use a very practical illustration. He's going to make it plain. How, what, what is the right mindset about the Christian life? Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that you may obtain. What did he say? So run. He says people that run in a race, they run with the mindset of obtaining something. They train and they train so that they can perform. This is training. When you step out the doors, time, to, time for performance. Time to use the exercise and the training that you get here, that you get in Bible school, all the other places where you store up the knowledge and the, then put it into practice. Make these things a reality in your home, in your workplace, in, your, in the classroom. He says, run that you may obtain. And then he goes on. Look at the illustrations here. Verse 26, therefore, so, I therefore so run, not as uncertain, uncertainly. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air. Uses these very practical athletic illustrations. Now, many of you could put that to use, couldn't you? You understand that. That's plain. Come back to Habakkuk now. Chapter 2 and verse number 3. So Habakkuk, write this down. I'm going to make sure that generation after generation has access to it so that when they read it, they can react properly. Verse 3, for the vision. Now, oftentimes you find, especially in the Old Testament, the word vision and prophecy is used interchangeably, and such is the case here. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. Now, there's two ways to understand the appointed time. It could be could very well be that God had chosen a specific date on whatever calendar there was to say, on this day, at this time, I'm going to do these things. Now, that's well within God's rights. He can do that if He wants. There's another way to understand an appointed time, and that is to say when everything else falls into a certain place, 
when the Babylonians have accomplished this and the Jews have learned this lesson, then when these things are ready, I will bring the other things to pass. And either way, you'll find the words due time or an appointed time, both uh, both things are, are explained in that way in the Bible. So he says, the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak. At the end, all right? At the end of what? I'm going to give you four possibilities here. And I think the the immediate meaning here, what he is directly saying, the end of the Babylonian kingdom. That's, That's the Babylonians are the Chaldeans. They're the ones that are going to destroy the Jews. And he says, at the end, it shall speak. So when that kingdom gets destroyed, you're going to, a message is going to be delivered. Three other ways you could understand this. <clears throat> We're looking far off into the future. It could be the end of the Antichrist kingdom, which if that's the case, that's right around the corner for us. Now, two, I want to say more practical or broader applications, the end of any wicked generation, because many times God says to a specific people group alive at that moment, you're finished, right? I'm going to show you verses on all this. Or it can be speaking to an individ, a wicked individual when that man has come to the end of his or her days. Let's say it that way. That person has come to the end of, God can say, that's it. You've crossed a line and, and I'm not going to put up with this anymore. Now, let, let's take a look here. Hold your, hold your place in Habakkuk. Get Daniel chapter 5. <clears throat> Daniel 5. Make those frozen fingers work here. Daniel 5 and get verse 25. So what we read in Habakkuk, it says, At the end it shall speak and not lie. It shall speak and not lie. So that message that God is communicating, it's going to happen exactly the way God said it would happen. And you're going to find then there, there was... There's no lie to it. It's not as if God had to change it because other things came up. Exactly what God said would happen is going to come to pass. The Scripture cannot be broken. All right now, he's, this is the end of the Babylonian kingdom, Daniel 5. This is Belshazzar's party, and the Persians are about to attack. And you might remember this is where there was handwriting on the wall. God's hand come down, and he wrote, Many, many, tekel upersen. Verse 25, the writing which was written, many, many tekel person. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mene, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. He's talking to the last king of Babylon. God has numbered the kingdom and finished it. You're done. Verse 27, tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. So you did not measure up to God's standard. Verse 28, Peres, which is the plural of Uperson. Peres, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So everything you've stored up, it's all going to be redistributed. You don't get to keep any of it. It's not going to be passed on to your children. Nothing. The end. It's done. Now, what we read in Habakkuk, when this vision comes to pass, it shall speak. What does it say? Your, num- your days are numbered. You're finished. And everything you've worked for has come to nothing. Now, that's what he said to the Babylonians. But look at how God does this at the end of all of these examples. Come to Revelation chapter 14. What he said to Belshazzar could be applicable to any wicked person. Revelation 14. This is at the end of the tribulation. 
This is the end of the Antichrist kingdom. Revelation 14 and 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, saying, or having the everlasting gospel, to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. So now you have an angel flying through the heavens. It's a UFO for those of you that, that watched last Sunday night, right? It's a UFO just buzzing around the whole world. And he's delivering a message. At the end, it shall speak and not lie. Verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And then some other angels come, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. And then you get one more saying, Anybody that has the mark of the beast, you'll feel the wrath of the Lamb. At the end it shall speak and not lie. You know, people say, oh, that Bible stuff, you know, that's just people's interpretation and those things don't, you know, that's just, uh, it's all symbolic and, no, no, exactly what the prophet said would happen to Babylon, it happened just that way. And exactly what God said is going to happen with the Antichrist, it'll happen that way. Come to Matthew chapter 12. Let's look at a wi- the end of a wicked generation. How does it end up? Matthew 12. Verse 39, Matthew 12 and 39. Jesus says, But he answered and said unto them, An evil and an adulterous, or an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. He said, This evil and adulterous generation, I'm giving you one last chance. I'll give you the resurrection. That truth. Everybody will have access to. But look what he says about this generation. Verse 45. Then goeth he and taketh with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. He is speaking to a generation of Jews that were religious, disgusting hypocrites. And he says, you guys play church, but you don't mean it. With your lips you honor me, but with your heart you're far from me. So Matthew chapter 23, look what he says to the same generation. You see, at the end of this generation, it spoke, and it did not lie. Because this same generation that heard these words, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem utterly. Destroyed Israel utterly. It shall speak, and it won't lie. Matthew 23 Verse 36, Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Look look at what he's talking about. uh, Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. He says, that's it. You guys make a big deal out of the temple, cover it with gold, honor the gold. He says, this house is empty. God's presence will no longer be found here. So when he dies on the cross, what does he do? The veil of the temple is ripped from the top to the bottom to show them that you can't see the presence of God in there. That's what the veil was meant to do, to stop the people from seeing that because they wouldn't be able to look on God's presence and live. By ripping it open, he says, see, nothing special in this house. What Jesus said, it came to pass. At the end, it shall not speak. Or it shall speak, rather, and not lie. It's going to come to pass exactly the way he said.
Uh, take your Bible, look at Luke chapter 12. What does it say to a wicked man? To an individual. At the end of an individual's life, he's lived it for himself, not for God. Luke 12, you have a parable about a rich man. Does very well in business. He has to pull down his barns and build bigger ones to keep all of his goods. Verse 19, I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 20, but God said unto him, here's the individual, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? You know what God says to a wicked man over there in the book of Ezekiel? Real simple, repent. Repent. And if you don't repent, you perish. Right? I've heard people in a jesting way say, you know, you, uh, what is it? Dry of bry. You, you, you turn or burn, right? Is what they're trying to say. As if that's a bad, they're making fun of, you know, you, you guys, you dry of bry. Jesus said this, repent or perish. Right? That's what he says to the wicked man. Repent or perish. You say, I don't believe that. One day it'll come to pass. At the end it shall speak. Won't lie. Come down. You got Habakkuk still? Chapter 2, verse 2. Let's cover one, one last thing. Verse 3. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. But at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it. Because it will surely come. It will not tarry. See, though it, it, the word tarry... Though it takes its time, it doesn't happen quickly. Though it takes its time, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not take its time. <laughs> What's he saying? The, when everything has fallen into place, and now, now that everything is where it needs to be, God says, uh-huh, now the plan is ready to put into action. Once that ball gets rolling, it won't stop. See? It might take time for everything to fall into place. Just wait. Wait for it, because when everything gets there, and God says, okay, I'm going to stand back and let the Babylonians do their thing. Let the Persians do their thing. Let the Antichrist do his thing. Now that that ball gets rolling, you ain't stopping it. Though it tarry, what, what does he say at the end? Because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Surely come. Where have I heard that before? Look at Revelation 22. Revelation 22. Where have I heard that before? Revelation 22, verse 20. The words of Jesus here. Revelation 22, 20. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. He says, guys, don't make any mistake. I am coming. Surely. I can be sure of this. Surely I come quickly quickly say well then what's he waiting for though it tarry wait for it other things need to fall into place right before the day of christ can happen we studied this last week in the sermon before the the day of christ has to uh, can happen then there first has to be a falling away and the man of sin needs to be revealed so once those things fall into place now the ball's rolling it's going to happen and it's going to happen quicker than you think one seal gets opened, then the next seal, then a trumpet, then a trumpet, then a violin. Remember the book of Revelation? Once those things get to happening, it's just pop, 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 one after the other. Now, people will say, well, you know, these things that have been prophesied and this whole Antichrist stuff and the mark of the beast, that was 2,000 years ago. 
Man, it still hasn't happened. And it will tempt some people to say, because it's taking so long, it must not be true. That's why he says, though, though it tarry, wait for it. Two last verses and we're done. Get Ezekiel chapter 22, or uh, chapter 12, I'm sorry. Ezekiel 12, I think that's right. Yeah, Ezekiel 12, verse 21. Ezekiel 12 and verse 21. <clears throat> it says here, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, what is that proverb that ye have in the land of Israel, saying, The days are prolonged, and every vision faileth? God said back there in Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, that if they go away from God and God's law, God will send people from another nation to destroy them. You know what the Israelites said? Yeah, but that was a thousand years ago, and it still hasn't happened. So then they were using this proverb. The days are prolonged and the vision fails. Verse 23, tell them therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I will make this proverb to cease. And they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel, but say unto them, the days are at hand and the effect of every vision. For there shall be no more any vain vision nor flattering divination within the house of Israel. For I am the Lord, I will speak and the word that I shall speak shall come to pass. It shall be no more prolonged for in your days, O rebellious house, I will say the word and will perform it, saith the Lord God. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, they of the house of Israel say, The vision that he seeth is for many days to come, and he prophesieth of the times that are far off. Therefore say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, There shall none of my words be prolonged any more, but the word which I have spoken shall be done, saith the Lord God. God's just waiting for everything to get lined up, and then he says, All right. Now we're ready to go. And when God hits the go button, you just can't stop it. That's why it says over and over in the New Testament, Christ came in due time. In due time. Everything fell into place. Bam, now it's time for Christ to come. And when he comes, you can't stop that. Second uh, Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3. The same thing that happened with Ezekiel. People saying it's taking too long, therefore we don't believe. Same thing is happening now. 2 Peter 3, let's begin in verse 3. 2 Peter 3 and 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days, we're there, scoffers walking after their own lust. A scoffer is somebody who makes fun of the truth. Verse 4, saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. So there's never been any cataclysmic big events. Everything's just going on the way it always has. Well, that's just not true. There has been a cataclysmic worldwide event, and Peter's going to go on and point that out. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So when you look at the calendar, you think, man, we've been waiting a while. God looks at the calendar and says, we're not even at the end of the week. We're not even to the weekend yet. This isn't even the weekend. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack 
concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. You say, man, God's taken too long by your standard, by your clock, but not by his. But, it says, is long-suffering to us word. What's he doing? Giving people a chance to get things in line. Why is he taking so long? Giving you a chance to get saved. Giving you a chance to serve him before he shows up. He's long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. By our standards, yeah, he's taking too long. He said, I'll come quickly. All right, well, quickly by my standards is like five minutes ago. (laughs) Come on, Lord, where are you? That's why John says, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Oh, you coming quickly? Then do it. (laughs) Then show up. Don't worry. When the time comes for that to happen, these things are going to start popping one after another, and in the end it shall speak. And it won't lie. While we have time, we do something about it. We read the vision and we run. It's okay, Lord, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do about it, I'll do that. All right, let's all stand. If you would, let's have a time of prayer. I took a little bit longer, as I normally do. Sorry for that. Sorry, sorry, sorry. We'll give you guys some extra time to fellowship out there in the sunlight. Father, help us to do something with what you've revealed. Lord, we can feel it. We are in those last times. God, help us to run in this race and run all, Lord, that we might obtain the prize. And we ask for your blessing upon the service to come. In Jesus' name, amen.